be seated. If you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, we have this somewhat longer reading on page 12 in your bulletin. When the readings are long, I try to preach shorter, so we'll see if I can pull it off today. It's important to kind of get this whole thing. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others to test him kept seeking for him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of of Jonah, rather, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, A Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God." These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses that you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. 
Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Work on us, Lord, we pray now by the Spirit as we hear in Jesus' good name. Amen. It may seem strange, but one of my favorite things in the pastoral ministry, one of my greatest joys, is talking with young people, Christians or non-Christians, who have real objections to the Christian faith. It's, it's, it's just great hearing thinking people object, question the faith. And what I find is, very often the objections that people have to Christianity boil down to basically one of two. One big category is that people feel that Christianity is actually the result of ignorance. People just don't know what science says, or they wouldn't be believers. They don't know what these other religions teach. They've never studied Buddhism and Zoroastrianism and all these other religions. They just, that's why. If they understood more, they knew more, they wouldn't be so naive to be Christians. That's one category. The other category I find is people think that Christianity is a cover-up, basically. Often a cover-up for weakness. You know, you need these feel-good stories about a father in heaven and a savior because you just can't handle reality. Or a cover-up, maybe more darkly, a cover-up for corruption. Yes, the God talk, but it's all a mask for power. It's a mask for abuse. And these are good, good objections to think about. They're important questions. But there is a point, I find, with a certain kind of objector... Not, not everyone by any means, but with a certain kind of objector, you do reach a point when you realize it becomes clear we are actually now no longer honestly evaluating evidences for or against Christianity. We're not honestly evaluating even how Christianity has been misused or abused. You run up against something deeper. There is a hardness. There's an opposition. Sometimes even an anger. And as Jesus winds toward Jerusalem in this long middle section of this gospel, we see this very sort of opposition intensifying toward him, and it really erupts, really erupts in this text at another level. Because you'll notice this text opens with a fairly matter-of-fact miracle. A man who is mute is released, and he can speak. His tongue has been freed, because he's been freed from a demonic power. And there's not a lot of fanfare here. It's almost stated matter-of-factly, But it's obviously amazing. But immediately, you'll notice in verses 15 and 16, immediately Jesus is is hammered with two objections. And I just want to kind of watch our Lord respond to these for a couple of minutes as we work through this. I want to begin by noting, taking a look at Jesus among the cynical. Jesus among the cynical in verse 15. There's a theologian named Kevin Van Hooser who says that there are basically two interpretive postures toward the world. So you and I are looking at the world every day and we're reading it, right? We're reading people. We're kind of getting, getting our read on institutions and events and narratives and facts. And we all have this interpretive posture toward the world. And Van Hooser says, one, quote, one posture seeks understanding. The other tries to avoid being taken in. So you've got these two postures toward the world, people, events, institutions, and so on. One is seeking understanding. I'd like to understand this better. The other is just trying to not be taken in. And that latter posture, that latter stance, 
we could call cynicism. I really like Dick Key's definition in his book, Seeing Through Cynicism, where he says cynicism has to do with seeing through and unmasking positive appearances to reveal the more basic underlying motivations of greed, power, lust, and selfishness. Cynicism says that every respectable public agenda has a hidden private agenda behind it that is less noble, less flattering, less moral, unquote. And that is what you see in verse 15. There is one set of critics that says about Jesus as he releases this mute man from a demon. says, you know, this looks very good. (laughs) This looks like a fine thing. You know, you might even be so confused as to think this is the Messiah. Actually, he's casting out demons by a bigger devil, the top devil. And I'd like you to notice something about cynicism. The main interest of the cynical is not actually proving the evil so much as discrediting the good. That's the real point here. Because it's hard to tell when you listen to this if these people are even serious. Do they actually really think this is Beelzebul at work? Because you can imagine a version of this that is completely unserious, doesn't believe it at all, but is still able to discredit. I thought this would make a great Saturday Night Live skit. You know, look. I'm Jesus. I'm saving the world. And someone pulls off the mask, and there's the devil with his horns and his pitchfork. And, you know, nobody expects to be Elzebul, and everyone falls on the floor and laughs. It can be completely a mockery scene. Nobody seriously thinks this is Beelzebul. They're just after Jesus. Because it's discrediting the good, whether it's serious or just mockery, that's the real point. More than proving that this or that evil is actually under the mask. Beelzebul's not really the point here. I don't know if they're serious or not. I don't think they care. I don't think in the end these critics actually care whether Jesus is working with the devil. What they are hell-bent on denying is that he's working for God. That's what they're hell-bent to discredit. And I'd just like you to think about that for a minute. There is a kind of cynicism. This is not true of all cynicism. I mean, there is such a thing as healthy cynicism. But there is a kind of cynicism that in tearing off masks, in unmasking and exposing, itself is wearing a mask. Because it postures as a concern about devils. It postures as a concern. The mask it wears is that, oh, we're so concerned about the rot underneath all these wholesome appearances. But underneath that stated agenda, the real agenda of this kind of cynicism, is to discredit any claim of authoritative goodness. The real agenda for this kind of cynicism is to deconstruct that there is any heavenly answer to earthly evils. That's the real thing that drives this kind of cynicism. These critics are chalking things up to the devil because they are trying to evade the claims of God. They do not want this to be God's work. Because if Jesus is, in fact, wielding the finger of God, they must bow to him. And they, therefore, are bent on discrediting him, and the devil is just a way of doing that. Now, we need to be very, very aware of and search ourselves from time to time about that kind of cynicism, the real heartbeat of which is to discredit that there is any authoritative goodness to which one must bow. Because Jesus, he gets this, and he unmasks, as he, if I may say so, he unmasks 
the basic problem with this kind of cynicism as he goes on to talk about these critics. And he shows that this kind of cynicism, if you think about it, looks at the world and thinks about the world entirely within a closed system. Nothing breaks into this system from outside. Everything for this kind of cynicism is more of the same. And you'll hear people talk like this even today. Everything's about power. Everything is a tactic driven by corrupt motives to subjugate somebody. Everything is one devil trying to overcome the next. And in that way of thinking, in which it's all within this sort of closed system. Oh, it's just the, bigger, the biggest devil at work here. All still within kind of this system. If that is true, Jesus goes on to point out, then nobody is ever actually released. Nobody is ever actually freed from oppression. Nobody is ever actually made whole by a power and a grace that burst in from outside the system. He goes on to make the point, if if this release, if this demon that was just cast out of this man is just more of the same, it's all part of the same system, nothing really ever changes, it's just one power in place of the next, then the options are slavery to a dominant devil, namely Beelzebul, because he can whoop up all the other devils, or just a brawl among warring devils. Those are your options. And notice how Jesus unmasks this kind of cynicism in verse 23 when he makes a very interesting comment. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, making it very clear, I am not part of this system. And whoever does not gather with me, notice this language, whoever does not gather with me is scattering. And that, beloved, is the end game for this kind of cynicism, that everything is more of the same. Everything is just power. Everything is just corruption. It's all part of the system. The end of that kind of cynicism is a constant scattering in which you can never gather at all because there is nothing to gather to. There is no authoritative goodness to gather to. There are no answers. There are only subversive questions. As Dick Keyes puts it, the genius of cynicism is that it is a voice in your ear which does not usually hang around long enough to be interviewed, let alone interrogated. It can move on leaving an insinuation, a slur, a humiliation, an intimation, and then changes the subject to start on something else. These people will just move on to the next way of discrediting Jesus because they're not interested in answers. They're interested in the subversive questions. That is the beating heart of this kind of cynicism. And Jesus describes the end game of that kind of cynicism another way when he says, you know what, you can cast out a demon. You can throw down this power. You can cast out this oppressor. You can deal with this devil. You can deal with this evil over here. And you can cast out this and that and the other evil. But you have nothing to replace it without God. If you do not have Jesus and the kingdom of God breaking in, you'll just replace one thing with another that's more or less like it. And you'll get the demon gone and seven more like it come in. And the state of that house is worse than the first. And that is literally what's happening in Israel. This cynical nation, oh, it's Beelzebul. They're in danger of being left with no Messiah. Just demons. No way. No truth. No life. And yet, despite their cynicism... The finger of God is at work. The kingdom of God has come upon Israel, Jesus says in verse 20. And to to deny that, these cynics would have to deny not just what Jesus is obviously doing in front of them, 
They would have to deny what many, he says, of your own sons, sons of Israel. I mean, 72 of them just went out through all of your villages. What were they doing? Doing what I'm doing, bringing the kingdom of God. The finger of God is working through them. They'll be your judges. They're your own people. You reject me, what about them? God is speaking life, whether the cynics want to acknowledge it or not. He is speaking a word that brings life. And Jesus says in verse 28, blessed are those who hear that word and keep that word. But there's another kind of critic. Not just Jesus among the cynical, but Jesus among the skeptical. Because the other objection in verse 16 is more skepticism. These critics say, well, you know, this all sounds great, and it looks great, and it's nice to see people being able to talk when they haven't been able to talk, but it's all just not convincing. Not enough evidence, Jesus. Give us a sign. We want further proof that authenticates that you're really something special, really from God, really from heaven. And to this Jesus, by this point in his ministry, if I may put it this way, I think Jesus has a holy weariness with this line. And he responds in verse 29 and following, you'll notice, with the sign of Jonah. He says, I'm going to give you one sign. It's called the sign of Jonah. And Jonah is an interesting sign because you know the story well. You remember that when God told Jonah, go preach uh, to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, a nation that was not friendly toward Israel one bit. Jonah was initially himself, as the Israelite, very resistant to the word of God. But eventually he ends up in Nineveh preaching a very simple message that 40 days from now God's going to destroy this city. And it's a crazy story because these Gentile Assyrians, now they know about Israel. They're probably somewhat familiar with Israel's scriptures. But, I mean, this is a stretch for these people. They're, they, why, would they, why, why would they listen to Jonah? And yet, without further ado, they just simply repent. They put on sackcloth and they repent. The only sign they need is the word of the prophet who comes and says, Israel's God is going to destroy your city. And they receive that word and they start putting on sackcloth and crying out to God to show mercy. And now, Jesus says, there's a greater word than Jonah's message and there's a far greater prophet than Jonah. And he is speaking in your streets. And if you want a sign on top of that, I'll give you a sign. Jonah will do nicely. Because the issue at play here is not evidence. The issue is openness, which are not the same thing. This is not an evidence problem. This is an openness problem. And what I'm going to show you is Jonah preaching to the Assyrians. They repented because they were open. This is actually kind of crazy. These Gentiles heard relatively little. I mean, if someone walked into East Northport tomorrow and said, in 40 days God's going to destroy this town, I would be skeptical. Especially if he's from some other place and some other religion. I just think he's a, he's a madcap. And yet these Assyrians, they didn't even hear very much. A very simple message. Israel's God has an issue with you, but they were open to it. I mean, think about this. These Ninevites somehow were open to the possibility they might be in trouble with God. They were open to the possibility that they were culpable before him. And they were open to the possibility that he sent this prophet because he wants to show mercy. And they responded. They were just open. Maybe we are in trouble. Maybe God is going to judge us. Maybe he will show mercy. Maybe that's why the prophet is here. And they're just open. And this pagan queen that Jesus mentions, the queen of Sheba, I mean, what's she doing way off in the east, sitting among her sages? She's got a court full of counselors, and yet she is open to the possibility. Maybe I don't have wisdom. And there's this king named Solomon, and he say he's something else. Maybe Solomon could give me wisdom I don't have, and she's open. And the people of Nineveh put on sackcloth before Jonah. And the queen made her long journey to visit Solomon. And Jesus says they're all going to stand up on Judgment Day, and they're going to judge hard-hearted Israelites because they repented. 
and a greater than Solomon is here. And the reality is, God has said enough. God has done enough. God has authenticated enough. If you sit with the word of God with an honest heart and an open heart, you really sit before it, honestly and openly. If Israel just looks at what is happening among them, unprecedented miracles going on, unprecedented preaching of God's own son, you know, he's eventually going to rise from the dead. And if you're with the word and you are open and honest before the word of God as it comes through Jesus, the reality is you have absolutely no reason to doubt the veracity of this. You have no reason to doubt the goodness of God coming through this gospel of his grace and mercy to sinners. But our hearts are not open. Our hearts are not honest. And no amount of signs will convince an unreceptive heart. You can rise from the dead. It won't convince an unreceptive heart, a heart that's not open. It's kind of like if I'm telling, this would never happen. I can imagine myself as a dad telling my son, you need to, need to mow, go mow the grass. And I'm kind of riding his case. You need to go mow the grass. And at some point he says, it's just, he's stubbornly refusing to go mow the grass. And at some point he just says, Dad, you know, do we have any real evidence that you're my biological father? At which point, if I'm running to get a DNA test, I have missed the point of this encounter. This is an openness problem. This is not an evidence problem. You've all been in arguments where you realize nothing more I say, no matter how persuasive, is going to move the needle. Because not all communication problems are with the speaker, especially when that speaker is the living God. God doesn't need to say anything else or give any more signs. He just says, have a look at Jonah. That'll, that'll do nicely. And the paradox here, as he goes on to say, is that Israel is to be the light to the Gentiles. I mean, they're supposed to be showing God's light to the world, yes? But he says that light is in danger of becoming darkness because of your eye. Because unlike the Gentiles in Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba, you refuse to see the light. Their eyes are darkened, their eyes are closed to the light that is right in front of them. So how on earth, they can't even orient themselves toward God's kingdom in their midst, let alone orient the nations to what's, what God is doing because the light that is in them, their eye is darkened. And so Jesus says in verse 35, he says, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to warn you, be careful, be watchful, lest the light of your eye be darkened. Pay attention to your capacity for blindness. Maybe... You're not seeing because God hasn't shown you enough. Maybe you're not seeing because you don't want to see, because you're refusing to see, because your eye is darkened. Pay attention, he says. Take care about that. And that brings us, lastly and very briefly, to this very awkward dinner, dinner party. We're going to see a few really awkward dinner parties. Like, this is, this is cringy. And it shows us what's at stake in these debates with the cynical and the skeptical. Because you've got the Pharisees and the lawyers. I read it to you. You heard it. And on the surface, you know, you would think, because we, we modern people kind of pride ourselves on our cynicism and our skepticism, you would think that cynicism would just loathe Pharisees. I mean, what could be, what could be better fodder for sort of Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live cynicism than these hypocrites, these Pharisees? And you would think that skeptics would just laugh at these lawyers' authority. As I said last week, these are not like John Coco lawyers. These are teachers of 
although it would be fun, as I said. They're teachers of Torah, right? They're, 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 they're teachers of the law of God, so they're called lawyers. And you'd think that skeptics would just laugh at these lawyers' authority. I mean, what are you doing that should make us believe you? Why should we believe you? And you'd think they would just laugh. But what committed cynics and committed skeptics fail to see is that they are already becoming exactly like these Pharisees and these lawyers. Because think about it. Pharisees, for example, they are such moralists, insisting on that, condemning that, demanding this, squinting at that. They're just moralists. But for all, Jesus says, for all their moralizing, for all of their apparent concern for right and wrong and good and evil and pure and impure, for all that apparent concern, he says, at heart, in your hearts, yourself is solidly on the throne. You rule on the throne of your heart. These Pharisees are entirely unbowed to the law of love for God. Jesus says, you're tithing all, I mean, you tithe, you tithe your basil. And you refuse justice and the love of God. They are not one bit interested in bowing to the law of love for God and justice toward their neighbor. Their hearts are ruled by self. And in fact, Jesus says, you are even using your very moralizing to elevate self. Apparently, being a Pharisee, it makes you good money. It's a wealthy sort of thing to be a great Pharisee. And they're, they're, he says, you're full of greed and wickedness. You're actually doing all this moralizing for your own, to, to line your own pockets. And to elevate yourself in the marketplaces because you just love being called. Teacher, rabbi. It's all about you. Well, cynics are moralists. If you're not a moralist, you have nothing to be cynical about. The most delightfully cynical comedians are perceptive moralists. But when cynicism meets Jesus... Cynicism meets one to whom it must bow the knee. This is not a laughing matter. This is God from God. This is genuine salvation. This is the kingdom from heaven. But cynicism would prefer to deconstruct. Oh, you know, harp on all the corruptions of Christians and, you know, the whole thing is just like all the other you know, stuff you hear, and, you know, it's, it's not any, you know, Christian, Christianity's been every bit as corrupt as every other religion, so they just, you know, that's deconstructing. Or they'll kind of lump Jesus in with all the other messianic movements. Yes, you know, they've been enlightened teachers, but all these movements and all their messiahs, you know, they've all got issues, and, you know, it's no different with, you're deconstructing. Or they'll just kind of mock Jesus' seriousness, like, you know, he's so uptight, you know, is it really such a, you're deconstructing. And your deconstruction, your cynicism toward God himself, it reveals a self that is absolutely unwilling to vacate its throne. There is a kind of cynicism that is full of its own authority, full of its own superiority, and mocks away at Jesus and everything else. And what is that when you really look at it but the heart of a Pharisee? And these lawyers are a sad lot. They really are. They spend all their time studying what God's wisdom has said. They do this professionally, and yet with an entire Bible telling them about this kingdom of God that's coming, and the key to that kingdom being handed to them 
in the person and the teaching and the miracles of this Messiah standing in front of them. This is the key that will unlock and bring you into that kingdom. What do they do? These brilliant lawyers, these learned lawyers, they're so full of their own knowledge, they, they, they treat that key as insulting. They're like people, they have the truth that sets men free right in front of them, and they take that truth, and it's like they're in a dungeon, they just throw it out the window. How dare you tell us there is a door we cannot unlock? Well, you can't without the key. And that's skeptics, too, right? Skeptics are like the lawyers. They seek enlightenment. There are people in this world, they seek enlightenment. You ever talk to one of these people? I've met types like this, and they're just, oh, I'm seeking enlightenment. There is a problem when you become too full of your own enlightenment to see the light. When you're so insistent on a sign that you cannot see the Messiah... There are claims of which we ought to be skeptical. If you're never skeptical, then you're foolish. But when God speaks, especially when he speaks through his word made flesh, the question is whether we will turn our skepticism on our own skepticism. Doubt our doubts. Question our own authority in the presence of ultimate authority. That is the question. I want to close with this question. As we look at this text, why, when God speaks, is he met with such resistance? Why? Why does God have such a hard time getting our attention? Why does God have such a hard time keeping our attention? Why does he have such a hard time sparking our interest or more importantly, sparking our wholehearted, enthusiastic, sold-out, amen, Lord. That's a strange question. If this, if Jesus, if God in flesh is the one who's approaching us, and what's he here to, to reveal? To reveal his heart, his love, his plans for the world and your part in those plans, his wisdom. The path to flourishing, yes, it's often hard, but it's always good. That's what he's come to reveal. That's what Jesus is here to minister. And the question is, if that's what he's here to do, to show us his love and his heart and his care and his plans and our part in the plans and how good it will be to live as God made us to live, then why doesn't every single door just fly open to him? What is it we're holding on to? that we do not want the God of life to disturb. So, do you know how much Jesus loves you? I'm not speaking to disciples. You all received the word, but I want to, it's good to ask yourself, even as a disciple of Jesus, do you know how much Jesus loves you? Do you know how much Jesus wants to fill his people with life and light and hope and joy and comfort and wisdom and power and endurance and virtue of all kinds. And he can. And only he can. And that's why we should just gladly lay aside anything to be with him. And I just want to leave you with that, because I know you've all got stuff where you need to hear the voice of Jesus. Do you know he is speaking to you, and he loves you? He loves you. 
God is glorified in blessing his people. It brings God glory to bless his people. So my encouragement to you as we as disciples listen to this and watch these skeptics and these cynics and these Pharisees and lawyers. Beloved, glorify God by receiving his blessing. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Open your ears to the word of God's kingdom. Whatever it is you are dealing with in your daily life, you are dealing with that in the kingdom of God. Open your heart and your eyes and your ears to the word of the kingdom and keep it in your inmost heart because this God is your king and he loves you and he will bless you. Open the door. And we recognize our Lord that even that is something you must do. You must give us a heart that opens. And so we pray for hearts that open, eyes that see, ears that really hear, souls that understand, and that bear much, much fruit for your glory. In Jesus we ask.